Rian Badenhorst's worst disappointment as a young man has led to a fairly successful career in IT security. There's no doubt that the folks at Kaspersky Lab, currently the world's fourth largest antivirus vendor, might be rather pleased that Rian's childhood dreams didn't come true. Today, Rian heads up operations for Kaspersky Lab's Africa business, a position he's occupied since late 2012. In his executive role, Rian oversees Kaspersky Lab's operations in more than 40 countries across the sub-Saharan region. In this conversation, Rian speaks to me about the increasingly complex challenges of ensuring the safety of Internet users. He also gives me his take on the growing trend towards the Internet of Things and offers advice around the precautions we all ought to be taking to avoid succumbing to the dangers that lurk in the digital realm. And Badenhorst, uh, I'd like you to think back to the biggest disappointment of your childhood and tell me about it. Well, I didn't quite expect that one as a, as a first question. I would actually maybe go back to the, to the later part of my childhood, maybe early uh, part of my uh, adulthood. As you are aware, I actually ended up in the IT industry and more importantly, the IT security industry. But uh, when I was growing up, I actually wanted to become a doctor. And uh, at the end of the day, things didn't quite work out as it, uh, or as I saw things working out. Um, so that was kind of one of my biggest disappointments that I can think of right now. But at the end of the day, I think I ended up in a much more uh, interesting environment where I'm sitting right now. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, having those challenges and having those disappointments probably uh, got me to the point where I am today. So was it more like a Formula One crash, you know, as it kind of happens really quickly, uh, or was it like a train smash, which is almost slow motion replay? If you think back to the time when you wanted to be a doctor and suddenly realized you weren't going to be anymore, like, was it a slow process? Did it suddenly happen? Do you remember the day you realized your dream wasn't going to come true? Oh, well, I remember it very well. It was literally something that you dreamt of for, for many years, and... uh when, you, when I came to the reali- realization that it was not going to happen anymore, um, it was like a train smash that played back in slow motion for probably about a year. You know, So you need some time to regroup and just figure out, well, this is not the direction anymore, so we need to find, uh, find a new way to go into. So it was kind of a train wreck happening over and over again in slow motion, sometimes fast forward. Take me back to the kid that dreamt about being this doctor, right? Uh, were there any other things you wanted to be growing up do you think do you do you remember anything else you ever wanted to be besides that well other than an astronaut and a fireman it was probably probably the only thing you know and it probably came from my sporting background Um, so uh, being a South African you're used to the outdoors um, playing sport having barbecues over the weekend so so sport actually formed a very big part of my growing up and uh, um, obviously with sport comes lots of injuries, so uh, I had many visits to the doctor. So uh, doctors, physiotherapists, things like that, and that's what kind of uh, um, got me into the whole motion of wanting to be a doctor and kind of more focusing on things like sport injuries, things like that. So, uh, so my activities and interests actually drove me towards wanting to be a doctor growing up. And so at which point does a career in IT become the thing you either want to do or the thing you resign yourself to want to do? And how did you get into it? Okay, so after this whole disappointment around not being able to become a doctor anymore, I was a, I was a bit lost and uh, I didn't quite know which way to go. So uh, my, my next point of, uh, or my next option was uh, going into finance. My dad was in finance, so that seemed like the... Um, you know, the, the almost the, what do you call it? Uh, the family business? <laughs> yeah, kind of something like that, you know. So uh, um, I actually started studying uh, um, BCom accounting because I thought, well, okay, listen, if I can't be a doctor, I'll be a, an accountant. That didn't quite work out. You know, the same thing day to day, day in, day out, numbers all day didn't quite work for me. And that was just the time when... Uh, the internet and uh, the whole IT boom really took place. So I thought, well, okay, listen, this looks like something that could 
be really interesting and uh, I decided well okay listen let's move away from uh, I, I know I'm not going to be a doctor let's move away from the idea of becoming an accountant so let's see where this IT wave takes us and that's how I got into the IT industry and been doing it ever since. And how much uh, influence did your parents have on what you'd later decide? How much of this were you doing to sort of please them or you know live up to the expectations of you know, people who come before you? Oh, well, the expectations are always there. You know, every father, if I think of my son, he's very small now, he's only five years old, but if I think of him, um, I just want him to be the best that he can be, and I want to equip him to be the best that he can be. And uh, obviously, my, my parents had the same uh, same idea ideas for me. So the pressure was always there to go and do something with your life. Um so, so yes, it was, uh, it was definitely uh, molded a lot by the way that they kept on driving me and saying, well, okay, listen, this is not going to happen, but uh, let's see uh, how this whole IT, IT thing works out for you. Let's go back to the whole disappointment thing. When was the last time you felt as let down as you remember being uh, as, you know, when you were younger in your current professional life? When was the last time you actually felt let down? I don't know whether it's... Uh, it's a professional disappointment, maybe a deal that didn't go through. Tell me what, what, what comes to mind when I say that. To be very honest, I can't think of anyone right now. So, uh, so you know, after that initial big disappointment that I had way back when, um, you know, the boat has pretty much been sailing in the right direction for me. So uh, I can't really uh, recap any specific major disappointment right now. For one, you're very lucky. <laughs> right, so you decide to take this IT thing. From the moment you decided to pursue IT as a career choice, uh, what did you have in mind in terms of where that career path would lead you? How does what you had in mind compare to where you are now? Oh, well, if I have to compare what I had in mind when I started off, um, I wouldn't have thought that it would actually bring me to where I am right now. If you think of your IT guy running around in the in the office every day with a PC under the one arm and a monitor under the other arm. That was me when I, when I started off, you know. So I never thought it would actually uh, bring me to a point where I would be, you know, heading up the operations for a multinational company throughout the whole of the Africa continent. So uh, I have to say that everything up until now has quite uh, heavily exceeded where I would have thought I would have ended up 15, 16 years ago. And so tell me about what it is you, you chose to focus on within IT. Were you a computer science guy, programming, uh, you know, hardware dude? What, what were you into? Okay, so I started off uh, thinking about programming, systems development, something, something to that effect. But I found that uh, um, I was actually more geared towards your whole networking, infrastructure, um, you know, kind of side of the, of the IT industry. So, uh, so yes, that's that, that's kind of what I've been in for the you know for the past fifteen, sixteen years is IT security, infrastructure, things like that. And so, given you're in an executive role, how much of your current role keeps you in touch with uh, the technical aspect of working, you know, in IT? And how much of that stuff do you miss or miss out on because you're you know essentially a leader now? Um, coming from a technical background, it's important for me to always uh, understand what the technical side of things are all about. So uh, I wouldn't say I miss doing a lot of the, um, you know, the physical technical things uh, um, too much. Um, I do miss out on a lot of it, but uh, um, having the, the technical background really helps me to uh, better drive my team and my sales team uh, because I understand the, the business and everything from a, from a technical perspective as well. Does the business side of, of, of being in IT sap the love out of... I suppose it's different for you because I, I've spoken obviously to people who all they ever wanted to be was uh, programmers or hackers or whatever this romantic notion of being in, in ICT or IT was like for them. So it kind of, it's kind of different for you. But which side of what you do now as a leader, as an executive resource to this business, might sap the, the enthusiasm um, out of being in tech? I think, I think it's actually uh, kind of increased my enthusiasm uh, being in the position where I am right now. 
because uh, for now it's not only about uh, understanding everything from a technical perspective and uh, making sure that everything that I um, let's call it own or that I have um, is secured from a technical perspective. It actually now gives me the opportunity to take this message to the you know to the broader audience out there and make them understand that you know what this is what you need to do to protect your business. This is what you need to do to keep your children safe online. This is what you need to do to pretty much make sure that all of your personal information and all of your data is protected in the right way. Because for me, if I just think of something that uh, our CEO, Eugene Kaspersky, always mentions, he says, you get two kinds of people. You get uh, technology residents. Now, those are typically the people that you mentioned, the guys that dream of becoming an ITC expert or guys that dream of becoming a programmer because they were born in the technology era. So they are IT residents. I see myself as a technology immigrant because I kind of grew up during that transition phase. You know, the first time I owned a mobile phone was when I was about 19 or 20 years old. These, guys, these days kids have smartphones when they're five, six, seven years old. So, uh, so for me, it's kind of just having the opportunity to uh, utilize our technologies and services and what we do to uh, inform people and help them protect their information, their families and uh, their companies. Let's talk about the business because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I do believe that Kaspersky is the world's largest privately owned, you know, cybersecurity firm, you know, registered in the UK, operating in 200 countries, 37 offices around the world, 3,300 specialists working all over the world. And yet it's, again, privately owned. You, you quote, you know, one of the owners of the business who is currently the CEO. And how different do you think... Uh, culturally, um, being privately owned and, you know, being such a large business but yet pri privately owned makes you relative to, to other players within, you know, the same field? I think one of the, the biggest pros to having a privately owned or being part of a privately owned company is uh, it really gives us the opportunity to uh, change quickly. You know, we live in a ever-evolving world. Technology keeps on changing. And uh, being a privately owned company gives us the agility to actually change fast. You know, so as things change, it's much quicker for us to change our approach and change the way that we uh, position our technologies and even develop new technologies to protect people against new trends or new, uh, new uh, risks out there. So uh, I would definitely say that that is probably one of our, our, our biggest uh, or the biggest plus points of uh, being a privately owned company. We'll probably agree that nine times out of ten that doesn't quite work. It doesn't quite work that way when it comes to family businesses and being privately owned. Often it might, you know, rub the other way where um, because, you know, personal interests are merged with business interests, it becomes even more difficult to maybe innovate or compete with, you know, personal interest. Um, would you say that's ever been the case? I don't imagine he'd say yes to this question, but it's worth asking. <laughs> it's worth asking, and I would say definitely no. Um, at Kaspersky, we actually, uh, one of our, our core values is uh, um, we're a big family. And uh, we have one big mission, and the people that work for Kaspersky all share the same passion. And our mission is to keep the world safe against cyber criminals. And everybody believes it. Everybody lives it. So, uh, you know, so from, from that perspective, I would uh, definitely say that uh, um, it's not the case. So, uh, so, yes. All right, then. Well, I'm, I'm curious to know what percentage of revenue the Africa business contributes to the overall uh, international business. Okay, so as far as the percentages goes, uh, Africa forms part of the emerging markets region. So uh, um, from a percentage perspective, probably around about 3% um, of, the, of the global revenue. But uh, really growing fast, expanding well. Um, I've really seen that the uptake in Africa has uh, um, been very well over the, you know, over the past few years with uh, the internet becoming more accessible, more people gaining access to uh, um, the internet and corporate networks through their mobile devices. It's definitely uh, um, allowed the business to grow and people, people are becoming more aware I would say, of, uh, of the risks and the threats out there. I wouldn't say they are aware enough yet, but, uh, but definitely growing awareness. 
And so is that number 3% indicative of the potential that um, Kaspergs, uh, your business, sees in the continent in terms of growth, given uh, mobile penetration improving and uh, in- internet penetration in general also improving? Or is this, um, where's most of the money made in terms of Kaspersky? Developed markets, I imagine? Oh, well, look, Kaspersky is, is, is really a, a global business um, with a market share divided quite evenly between Europe, America. Then we've got the Russia-Stan countries, emerging markets, um, all of them contributing more or less uh, a similar share to the pie, you know. So uh, it's really truly a global company. We, we don't have uh, one specific market where we can say this is the most important market and the other ones are just uh, peripheral. Um, all of the markets have more or less uh, um, an even share as far as, as far as the contribution to the global business goes. And in terms of the management model, do each of those regions have a, a Rion heading them up uh, in a similar position as you? Yes. In terms of uh, oversight, which country is on the African continent? I believe you, you take care of something like 40 in sub-Saharan Africa. Is that right? Uh, yeah, 40, 42 to be exact. Right. So which ones take up most of your time in terms of oversight, in terms of the amount of time and energy it takes to, to massage the market and... Uh, and, and, and extract that extract value. Okay, so as far as uh, the African continent goes, there are obviously certain countries that are more mature when it comes to uh, um, to the IT infrastructure, mobile infrastructures, telecommunications info- infrastructures. So we have some we have some focus countries or key countries within the continent. Obviously, with uh, the local office being based in South Africa, South Africa is obviously one of the the core countries, uh, if I can say, out of the out of the forty two countries that we that we look after but uh, we're also seeing uh, um, you know some significant increases in countries like Kenya countries like Nigeria Tanzania um, so you know so definitely spread widely across the African continent do people still buy software packs from computer stores like the last time I upgraded well the last time I had a PC I, I, I upgraded uh, online um, uh, how, how do antivirus software companies make money in 2016 what's your model that's an interesting question. What I've actually found is that in the African market, the retail business is very much still alive. So people physically go into a store, buy a box to protect their PC. The online business is increasing, but uh, unfortunately, one of the things holding back the online business is still the, the infrastructure, cost of bandwidth, things like that. So, uh, um, so from, a, from, a, from a retail perspective, business is actually still growing. Um, so, so you, you, that, now that surprises me totally. So people are literally still going into the exclusive, uh, incredible connections of this world, uh, buying a box of, of software and installing it with a CD. Wow. And so <laughs> in terms of where you know the world is going, and I know Africa is not there yet, uh, how much effort do you, do you then, as, a, as, you know, as, a, as an executive resource now, dedicate to... Uh, a channel that you know is likely to diminish over time over over say a very you know potentially a much higher margin channel that will will definitely grow but perhaps not at the pace we'd like yes so so as far as that goes we pride ourselves in being a company that uh, um understands our market and make sure that we are ready whenever there are shifts in the market, whether that be from a product perspective, whether that be from a delivery or sales perspective. So, uh, you know, we're obviously working on, uh, um, and we actually already have it available uh, as far as things like cloud provisioning goes, online sales. So, uh, so, so retail is not, definitely not the only place where you can, uh, can find us. We are ready to make that adjustment or make that move as soon as the market actually, uh, um, you know, starts moving in that direction. So, and overall, would you say your business is more consumer focused or targeted at corporates? Our business is actually divided into uh, three different segments. So we've got our consumer business, which remains uh, a key part of our business. Then we've got our uh, if you can call it uh, SMB business, you know, your smaller companies, uh, medium enterprises, and then our enterprise business. So uh, we've got different technologies, different solutions, different products, focusing on on all three of those business segments. And uh, at this point, we're very close to uh, having almost an even 
division between those uh, between those three business segments. You mean in terms of revenue or in terms of the size of the business? Uh, kind of both. And so how is piracy, speaking specifically now to the consumer side of the business, how has piracy affected your ability to, to basically you know, m- make money in the consumer space? Okay, so as far as piracy goes, uh, um, all of our products are activation code based. So it, didn't, it doesn't really affect our product or the sales of our product. Um, where piracy does, however, affect us is when uh, people have pirated versions of operating systems or uh, versions of, uh, um, you know, Microsoft Office or something like that installed on their uh, on their machines. If it's cracked versions that are not updated regularly, it obviously reduces our uh, um, chances of protecting uh, the customers because um, typically those pirated versions aren't updated often enough. So uh, um, there are vulnerabilities in the software that we cannot protect the customer against. So from uh, from a Kaspersky perspective, it doesn't really affect our sales. But uh, um, our ability to protect customers proactively does depend on them actually having uh, legal versions of the software installed with regular updates done and things like that. Now, the next question is going to require some humility, I think, because I want to ask you to tell me that, you know, in your estimation, what are the likeliest sources of disruption to your business model? I think the only potential of that happening is if the malware business does not exist anymore. Um, the one thing I can tell you is that malware business is growing faster than the businesses protecting people against malware. You know, malware has become a multi-billion dollar a year business. So people in the hacking, in the um, crea- creation of malware business, um, their businesses just keep on growing and the number of threats keep on increasing. So I think the only thing that uh, um, would really threaten a business like ours not being here 10 years from now is something like that happening. Or maybe the internet not existing anymore. I don't know. You must have heard the conspiracy theories around this. I mean, on on the streets, you know, that... um uh, if we dug deep enough, we might find that companies like yours might have this this college dorm room full of kids, you know, <laughs> sponsored kids <laughs> creating creating malware so that you can solve and, and, and make money from. What do you say when people, you know, make those sort of assertions? Uh, it kind of depends on what time of the day it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but seeing that this is a relaxed, open conversation, uh, I, I actually... Uh, prefer to to give the people a kind of a analogy or a comparison for the lack of a better word but uh, you get good cops and you get bad cops okay and uh, as i said we're here to keep people safe from cyber criminals and uh, we're the good cops you know we work together with companies like uh, europol interpol we help them with investigations if any major incidents takes place so uh we definitely don't have a, a room full of teenage kids, uh, um, you know, creating these, you know, this malware. Um, we're there to protect people against it. Let's talk about the enterprise business and this trend towards hacktivism. Uh, groups like Anonymous making it really, really interesting for, for governments and big corporates all around the world. Uh, I'd imagine it probably be really good for you guys uh this whole trend uh in in a sort of roundabout way not that you promote it necessarily but um you know what what sort of response do these kind of threats elicit from a firm like kaspersky and at, at an enterprise level uh do you offer the kind of services say hacking team does to, to governments and, and and private clients yes so uh so we've got a complete enterprise portfolio um whereby we provide our services and our uh, um, more advanced solutions to uh, um, big corporate customers, to governments, um, security response teams. So uh, we really work, we try and work as closely together as we can with our customers. Um, We've got a a global team called the Global Research and Development Team, or in short, we we refer to them as the great team. 
because they are great. They're actually, they're definitely the best team as far as security intelligence goes globally. And intelligence is power. And we uh, try to ensure that uh, we provide these intellig- or this intelligence to governments, to banks, to all of our big customers to ensure that we can help them better proactively protect themselves against, uh, you know, all of these hacking communities out there. This must come with interesting political issues, especially given how you take care of Africa and and how we've covered in in in, an, in another podcast that I produce, the African Tech Roundup, uh, countries Ethiopia, Kenya, all being caught uh, uh, essentially doing things that you know uh, morally they shouldn't really be doing in terms of spying on on, on people that you know the government doesn't like, etc. My question to you then is, what's the vetting process around who you work for, work with, uh, to provide these sort of services, and what sort of uh, um, what sort of considerations are made at Kaspersky in determining who should be a client and who shouldn't be? Okay, so as far as as far as that goes, I think I think the most important thing uh, from a from a company perspective is the fact that. We are in the business of detecting malware, so we don't we don't attribute. So we we detect and we uh, provide information, and we uh, assist customers in putting remedial uh, uh, measures in place if there was any uh, security breaches or data leaks or things like that. Um, but as far as the political side of things goes, we don't uh, we don't get involved with it at all. We purely. Um, detect and we um, provide information around uh, around uh, new threats out there regardless where the threats comes from you know whether those threats come from uh, um, Russia China doesn't matter doesn't matter where the threats come from we detect it and we report on it we're not uh, um, from a political perspective we we don't get involved okay so you're quite different to hacking team in that regard so you wouldn't have been on the list of people the U.S. government asked to tender to try and break into the Apple device, you know, some weeks back? No. <laughs> right. So my next question now is, uh, I mean, I think of firms like Ashley Madison, the Panama Paper League. Uh, uh, I can think of a whole host of African governments in the last few months uh, who've been hacked, different departments, etc. What are they all doing wrong in terms of? Uh, are they not speaking to you guys? Are they not getting the right advice? What are they doing wrong? Um, what are they not doing right? Okay, so I wouldn't say they're necessarily doing something wrong. Okay, um, I think it's just with the the pace that all of these uh, threats are um, progressing or becoming uh, more advanced. Um, historically, it would be enough to make sure that you have invested your IT security budget in some kind of a preventative technology. You know, your typical endpoint security, some perimeter defense, things like that. And uh, um, we've actually found that about 80% of security budgets are being spent on preventative technologies. But people don't always understand that they need to start moving away from the preventative technologies and start focusing more on uh, services and solutions that can help you uh, um, predict and detect and then also respond. Because people don't always think, okay, what are we going to do when something goes wrong? So... Uh, as I said, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're doing something wrong. I would just say that they need to start looking at spending more of their budget towards the technologies that allows them to um, predict and respond to any kind of intelligence breaches. Because as far as your, um, if you want to call it... uh, typical endpoint technologies would go, no vendor will ever guarantee you 100% detection. So you need something to protect you against all of these advanced threats out there and then obviously uh, um, have something in place or a procedure or a team in place that will help you to respond if anything goes wrong. Well, my next question would then be, uh, is there even such a thing as cybersecurity, truly speaking? Surely there are no foolproof online safety mechanisms. You've made reference to the billion-dollar industry that is the malware productions, you know, the malware production business. Uh, yeah, is it 
how do you then what is what sort of guarantees are you in a position to offer then as a business so so from a from a cybersecurity perspective there's no such thing as 100% protection okay but you can put things in place um, we've we've actually got four different segments that we look at when it comes to cybersecurity okay so as i talked a little bit earlier we talk about prevention now prevention is your Typical kind of endpoint perimeter solution that uh, that makes sure all of your all of the PCs and so forth on your network is protected. Make sure your gateways are protected. Typically, in an instance like that, most companies guarantee you 99.9% uh, um, detection rate. If you are ever couple that with uh, um, a solution that specifically looks for all of your uh, targeted or your advanced persistent threats you could probably get close to 100%. I don't think any company will ever guarantee 100% detection rate up front. But if you combine that with the prediction, now the prediction can only be done if you have intelligence. So you need some kind of intelligence to make sure that you understand which ways threats are developing. Um, and then also putting together with that the detection of these advanced threats and then having a team in place or having uh, a service in place whereby if something goes wrong, you can at least respond to it as soon as something happens. So with those, those four legs put together, um, you know, I'm sure you would be uh, um, very close to ensuring that your network is as close to 100% protected as possible. With some of the world's most valuable brands um, at the moment being technology brands, I think we're in an unprecedented space in history. And, um, of course, you've got hardware makers like Apple, you know, leading the pack. But, you, you know, you've got Google involved, software makers like Google, you know, a, a, soft, a social media platform like Facebook, which we, can we even call them a social media platform anymore? I don't know what they are now, but they're certainly in that space. And and given the amount of data that's now involved and the their role in being in people's lives and potentially either a conduit of good things or very, very dangerous and scary things, Whose responsibility is it, do you think, to keep people safe? I mean, you look at, uh, and I, I think of WhatsApp that has just recently, you know, enacted end-to-end -end encryption within the app. Um, Apple, you know, refusing to let the FBI into, into one of their pieces of hardware. And then, of course, governments seeing themselves now in a position where, for the public good, they need to protect their citizens, etc. Where does the buck stop in terms of keeping people safe? Or is it our responsibility as consumers of these products and services to keep ourselves safe? So as far as that goes, it's kind of difficult because we're talking about so many different uh, segments within, within, within our community. Okay, so I would have to say if the buck had to stop with, let's take my home and my family's information as an example, I think the buck stops with me. You know, and um, the most important thing is that people need to start understanding that um, they are still responsible for their own data. You know, and there's so many different places out there where your data is, oh, well, not readily available, but where your data is stored. And if uh, if there were to be a breach within that organization holding your data, um, it would personally affect you. I would have to say, as I said, from, from my perspective, for my family, my home, the buck stops with me. When it comes to organizations, they need to understand that they are responsible for the information within that within their network and whether that is their own uh, internal intellectual property or whether that is consumer information they need to understand that they are responsible to keep that information of the customers safe the trends towards the internet of things and this global aspiration that seems to be growing to make our cities smarter um, these are exciting things but also quite scary things because there are many inherent dangers that connected devices many of them mobile could potentially pose to users and this is even without us exposing ourselves via the applications we put on them um, it's getting to the point where i mean we can get hacked without you know having a subscription to anything talk to me a little bit about that what what sort of things should i be thinking about as an individual without being uh, paranoid what, what should i bear in mind I think when it comes to IT security, it's probably best to be a, be a little bit paranoid. <laughs> um, it's just uh, people just need to understand that anything connected to the internet has the possibility of, of being hacked. Um, you also have to think about the fact that uh, um, obviously the, the size of the risk would, uh, would obviously differ. You know, I've got a lot more information on my, on my mobile device 
than I have on my iPod. You know, on the iPod, there's not really that much that I could lose. But uh, at the end of the day, you also just have to keep in mind uh, for the hacking community, it's kind of, as I, as I said earlier, it's a multi-billion dollar business and it's all about supply and demand. So uh, they will always go after the easiest targets where they can get the most information without uh, too much uh, effort. That's it. Yes. So tell me, as someone who works in the business, you've got, uh, you obviously have a family, one you obviously want to protect. How excited do you get about the prospect of having everything from your garage door to your swimming pool temperature, <laughs> your, your dog feeder, uh, your office, you know, your office, you know, office television and everything hooked up to this one big seamless connected space? How excited does someone like you, knowing what you know and being in the business you're in, how, does, how, how excited do you get about those kind of prospects? To a certain extent, uh, very excited. Um, as, long as, as long as you just make sure that, uh, you know, that the correct measures are being put in place. I don't think it's something that people should shy away from. It's something that people need to embrace. I just think the most important thing is they need to understand the risks that go with it. If you cross the street, you know there is some risk. But, you know, if you look left and you look right and you look left again, then you'll be okay, you know. So uh, um, I don't think people should now start shying away from these kinds of things or these kinds of developments. It's just uh, they just need to understand the risk and what they need to do to mitigate the risk as far as, as, far as that goes. Now, another trend that's all the rage at the moment, cloud computing. You mentioned that uh, you've got certain products in that space already. I've read Conspiratory. Uh, conspiratorial think pieces that suggest that the last thing that big organizations ought to do is store their data in the cloud. Well, what would you say to, to people who hold that view? Once again, it depends on uh, who is taking care of the security of the cloud platform that you are uh, um, putting your data on. Um, so I personally have no problem putting any of my data in the cloud. Most of my data is sitting in the cloud, but you have to make sure that the um, data that you're putting in the cloud is secured with a unique password. And, you know, just once again, making sure that you understand, firstly, how important is the data that you're putting there, and then secondly, uh, what measures are in place to protect the data. What percentage should I be totally at ease and excited about this? And you know, I'm listening to you, and I'm thinking, what percentage should should I be paranoid and absolutely should I like go home and like take a take stock of all my exposure and and like mitigate all these risks at what on, on a practical level for at a user level at a sort of consumer level? How you know how much time should I be spending worrying about this stuff? If you if you if if you've put the right measures in place and you've got uh, you know some kind of a um, solution helping you protect yourself against uh, threats like that, this shouldn't be keeping you up at night. Um, if you are ever are just putting your data everywhere, using the same password for all of the different platforms, then. Uh, I would probably get a bit paranoid. Uh, changing gears a little bit, are you personally invested in, in the startup scene on the continent in any way? Uh, are you involved in any way? Are you an angel investor? Do people come to you for advice when they're trying to start out? Uh, are you involved in any in, in that scene at all? Uh, no, not at this point in time, no. Okay, so let me give you a hypothetical situation. I gave you a million US dollars right now to invest in a growth area within within uh, tech you know, on the continent, what would what would your where would you sink that million rand and a million dollars? Where would you sink the million dollars today? And it had to be one place, and not an established business. It had to be something new, maybe a greenfield space. I don't know, mid tech, fintech. So I'm not allowed to take the money and run. No, no, that is not on the table. <laughs> um, wow, that's a difficult one. I think I think it would probably be. Something to, and probably because I have children and probably, uh, well, everybody loves their children, but uh, um, understanding all the risks out there is uh, something to try and keep children safe, you know, with uh, all of the um, growth in social media. You know, you've got children that are six, seven years old having so social media accounts and, you know, so something, something towards child safety within the growing IT, internet of things kind of scenario. You caught me a bit off guard, but that's kind of, if I had the million dollars right now, if I can't take it and run, then that's probably uh, what I would look at investing it in. Okay, and it's interesting you, you point that out. Are you a strict kind of par parent? What would your parent, what would your kids say? Would they, would they say dad's strict? 
Yes. <laughs> what sort of things? Why would they say that? Like you didn't hesitate at all uh, with that. Why would they say you're strict? Um, probably because I know what I got away with with when I was a kid. So uh, it's uh, probably not that easy to try and get get something passed. It's just uh, I don't know. It's for, for 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 me personally, and I I kind of am the same person at work as well. I don't really have any gray areas. It's kind of black and white, no gray in between. So, uh, And then you could probably be seen as strict if uh, there's no room to, to wangle, if you, if you can call it that. So, yes. So you're old school in that regard in terms of um, I'm the parent, you're the child, this is the right thing, do the right thing. Probably, yes. And so uh, if someone were to, if, if you had to pick someone to play you in a movie, like who would it be? And, and then explain that choice. Also, this is going to be an opportunity for us to see what kind of movies you're into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, look, I prefer, I prefer comedies. So, uh, if somebody had to play my role, maybe somebody like Jack Black. Jack Black? Well, he, he, doesn't, come, he doesn't come across very strict at all. I mean, come now. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but I mean, uh, you know, being, with it probably being a comedy, uh, you know, Jack Black's kind of the, the only guy that I could think of right now. So... <laughs> You know what I was thinking as you, you know, as you were thinking. No, Matt Damon. Oh well, that could work as well. Because yeah. I mean, I'm, and I'm looking at your vibe. You've got this. Uh, you've got the the whole. Yeah, you kind of you look like an action man, and you look pretty stern and pretty, you know, pretty organized and that kind of thing. And I imagine Matt Damon. Uh, well, maybe a not a much less violent version of Matt Damon <laughs> in uh, what's the the born the born movies. Identity are oh, the born movies. Yeah, that could work. I, I, I would be happy if Matt Damon played my role. Oh, well, I would be happy if they ever decided to bring out the movie. It will probably not be a box office hit, but, uh, but yeah. Well, he's dabbled at a, in an Afrikaans accent before, so you remember with Invictus. Yes, yes. Yeah, he'd at least be able to do that, yes. Well, nearly, maybe, maybe, maybe nearly. So not all of us dug, dug it. Do you listen to podcasts? As I said, I'm a technology immigrant, so I wouldn't say I've completely made, made that shift, um, but uh, um, I do listen to them uh, sporadically. I'm not uh, registered with uh, like weekly podcasts, but if I see anything interesting, I definitely, definitely take the time to listen. So this immigrant status of yours, right, this self-imposed immigrant status of yours, does this inform what kind of team you surround yourself with? How much thought do you put in, into making sure that you're not, you know, at a boardroom table with a whole bunch of other immigrants? Or is that, is that something you you even think about at all? No. So uh, I actually mentioned the whole uh, two different types of people to just uh, um, kind of show you the picture that for some people there was quite a big um, step that they had to take to actually start taking up these uh, these technologies. Um so as far as that goes, uh, I'm a technology immigrant, but uh, I, I am now a full, if you can call it, uh, technology resident. So I actually got, I think I got my technology residence, but, uh, you know, it came with some time and with some adaption, and, uh, but, but I think I'm there. You got your ghetto pass. <laughs> Something like that, yes. <laughs> okay, so what do you think, I mean, coming back to your children now, and how many do you have? Um, I've got one with uh, twin girls coming in July. So one for now, but three very uh, shortly. That's incredible. What does your wife do? Uh, my wife is a social worker. Oh, wow. Great. So, so tell me the one thing that your current child might... Something about you personally, uh, maybe uh, an insight into how you grew up, that your child might not know about you or understand about you. Oh, well, he's still quite small. He's only five years old. So I think at this point, uh, um, the only thing he probably understands about me is that yes is yes, no is no. And when we can play outside, it's fun times. That's kind of, I think, what he understands from me right now. Um, so, yeah. Do you remember being his age? No. What's the earliest you, you can remember being uh, as a child? People always ask me this, and I think the closer you get to 40, the harder it is to kind of remember as far back, you know. But but the first real uh, memories that I have was you know, probably around about five, six, you know, going down on holiday, 
playing on the beach, but it's all just little flash flashes. You know, it's not really uh, that I would say I can remember it was exactly that year or those were all the people that were there with us. So, And does when you think of your career, say, even here at Kaspersky, because you've been here for a while now, uh, how much of that is a vivid memory as opposed to one big long stretch? Um, are you talking about my time within Kaspersky? That's right. Because um, you've been here since 2012, I think? Uh, 2011. Yeah. So 2011. So how much of that is like one big long stretch? Are there highlights? Do you, can you think back to like special times in each year going back? Uh, you know. Yeah, I think uh, things have changed so much. Uh, oh, well, firstly in the industry and then also uh, within our business in Africa over the past, uh, past five or six years that, uh, um, you know, it's definitely been a been a process, and there's definitely uh, you know some highlights that I can uh, can remember throughout the, throughout the past six years. So, yeah. What would some of those highlights be for you? Um, no, no, I can just think about you know signing our first big government deal. Um, you know, we had a we had an internal uh, um, target to double our number and so i can remember the day when we actually did the deal that took us to double the number that we did the previous year so you know various uh, various various highlights would you say in terms of your personality do you look back more or look forward more no i don't i believe what's in the past is in the past and i prefer to uh, to look forward uh, my dad always said that i'm a problem solver you know you can't solve a problem if you keep on talking about the problem you know so uh, um, so I prefer to look forward rather than uh, than back so let's look forward a little bit and how far ahead do you tend to look forward I know you know in 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 corporate uh, you know the four-year cycle is pretty typical uh, which I feel is problematic in many respects but how far ahead do you look ahead and and let's talk about yourself first and then the business how far do you look ahead and what do you see for yourself and what do you see for the business? Okay, so uh, I, I believe that if you look too far ahead, you kind of lose focus about, you know, of things that are, um, you know, closer to you or, or, or a little bit uh, in the, let's call it more short to midterm. So uh, I prefer to have, and that's now personal life, business life, when I uh, start planning things together with my children, I prefer to... Uh, you know, have a short and medium term focus, but you need to have a long term strategy. So uh, um, I think the long term strategy is definitely uh, without the long term strategy, you're, you're not going to know how to plan your short term, um, short and medium term. So and so what is long term for you? What, what counts? Is it 10 years? Is it five? Is it 10, 15? Uh, long term, I would say three years, three years and, uh, and longer for me personally. So I prefer to say this is what we want to achieve within three years and then kind of divide it into shorter intervals and have uh, strategic points to say by within the next six months if we want to achieve this target in three years within six six months we need to have this in place six months after that we need to have achieved that or yeah so that's that's kind of the way that i prefer to uh, to do things and make sure we get to where we want to be within three years or four years or two years from now so let's talk three years where are you in three years time do you think Hopefully having a three-year follow-up session uh, with you in the same boardroom. So <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> yeah. So uh, um, obviously, obviously for Kaspersky as a, as a company, um, you know, uh, our goal is to be seen as the number one provider of information security and uh, um, awareness to people out there. So, uh, so that's, that's our strategy. And... Uh, um, with us, uh, you know, you asked a question a little bit earlier about us being a privately owned company. We actually have quite a flat structure. So, uh, you know, we have that same strategy and that same focus and same drive uh, um, for Africa. And where do you guys currently rank in terms of size worldwide, you know, with the McAfee's of this world and ESET and all those guys? That's an interesting question. People always uh, ask the question and uh, – um, 
I'm not going to ask you the question back, but typically my question would be, are we talking about revenue? Because if you purely talk about revenue, um, on the African continent right now we're number three. Um, but you also have to think about other um, strategic things, uh, you know, as far as being, you know, trusted security advisors. Um, but purely looking at revenue, um, we're number three on the, on the African continent right now. Uh, we were actually on a downhill trajectory, but you just made me think of something else, and then we'll come to our final question. Um, I'm sure 10, 15 years ago, we wouldn't have predicted that Apple would be the force of nature it is today in terms of uh, creating this ecosystem that, quite frankly, um, I think many companies, yours included, might not have thought about in terms of uh, relevance. I'm sure the PC market is is pretty much from a consumer point of view where you do most of your, you know, uh, you know, you basically service the most. Uh, but then now we've got not just Apple and hardware makers like Apple, uh, hardware slash software makers like Apple, but you've got your Googles and Facebooks of this world who are constantly trying to keep us in their ecosystems and render any outsider irrelevant or, unnec or unnecessary. Given that, you know, what, what sort of conversations do you have around those kind of things as, as far as Kaspersky is concerned? Do you collaborate with these guys? Do you look for ways to, to become part of their ecosystem? Do you, do you try and fund uh, um, uh, disruptive technologies that, that, uh, that, or disruptive businesses that, that compete with them? Uh, how do you think about these sort of changes at Kaspersky? Okay, so we have some global agreements in place with a lot of the partners or a lot of the, the organizations that you just mentioned because the other thing to also keep in mind is uh, a lot of those platforms are not always designed with security as the number one concern. You know, it needs to look nice, it needs to work well, it needs to run fast. So uh, we actually have uh, um, strategic partnerships with a lot of the companies that you just mentioned with um, also with the likes of Microsoft to uh, um, work together. So uh, I wouldn't see our relationship with any of those uh, companies that you just mentioned as uh, working against each other. I would see it as a, as a, as a working together relationship. And then as far as your question about Mac goes, you definitely uh, need protection for Mac. I've also got a Mac and I've got Kaspersky loaded on it. So uh, um, the, the number of, uh, or, 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 or the malware, the number of malware for Mac is actually on the increase. So you definitely need something. Okay, well, thank you for planting the seed of paranoia. <laughs> You've certainly done a good job, um, and uh, I'll take you up on that, um, on that package on my way out. Uh, but certainly for the last question I'd like to ask you, what question do you wish I, I would have asked you but didn't? I think, I think if there was one question, um, and I think we kind of touched base on it uh, um, throughout, but it's kind of just uh, the question that I would have liked to be asked is something like, uh, is malware a reality? Because I like short answers, and my answer would be yes. So that would that would probably be the one the one question. Yes. <laughs> well done. Well, you asked the question, you answered it. Well done. Thank you so much for giving us your time, Rian. And here's to catching up in another three years. Um, uh, if it's in this boardroom, well, sure, I'll look forward to it. Perfect. Thank you very much, Andile. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to African Tech Conversation.